This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. If you were reading the Very Serious newsletter, you saw an issue that I wrote uh, last month back in December about housing, responding to a feature article that Jerusalem Demsis wrote in The Atlantic about how housing is not investment, it's consumption. And I was drawn to this article in part because that's something that I say frequently enough that my husband rolls his eyes at me when I say it. And what I mean by this, when, or at least when I say it, is that uh, the, the purpose of owning a home is to have the use of the home. A house obviously has investment characteristics. You pay up front for this thing that you were going to use for a very long time. It can go up or down in value. But that's sort of incidental to the usage. The primary reason that you would be buying a piece of real estate for your own use is to use it. That's how you determine whether the purchase is a good decision or a bad decision, whether you're getting good value out of it. And ideally, uh, the investment characteristics, what happens to it, that should be incidental. But unfortunately, uh, we have had a public policy environment and a market environment for several decades with persistently rising home prices, and uh, or at least that was the case until this year. Uh, and that's, you know, there, there are certain homeowners who came out substantially ahead in that, but it has led to some very perverse incentives where people hope to own a home, have the use of the home, and have that home be a retirement-saving vehicle that they can then sell in retirement to finance other retirement activities. There are, of course, problems with this. One is that you still have to live somewhere in retirement. Uh, and so sometimes people can make that work, but it's you know it's not like once you quit working, your your housing usage and your housing costs go away. But the other thing is those people who are trying to do that, they have children. I mean, those children are trying to buy houses at the same time that they are retiring and, and looking to sell their houses. And it's almost this Ponzi scheme type thing where you, you can't have home prices keep going up and up and up in real terms in that manner because housing becomes increasingly unaffordable for people, especially uh, in the coastal markets that have the best job markets and the best reasons to want to own homes there. Uh, and so this has been a real problem. And it's a, it's a problem that we talk a lot about on the internet. And yet it persists. And there are related problems that persist also. Homelessness of course, is in large part driven by the extremely high cost of housing in many parts of the United States. Uh, and so I wanted to bring Jerusalem Dempsis here to talk about these issues, how they work, and, and why they don't get fixed, uh, because that's been a key part of her writing at The Atlantic. So Jerusalem, first of all, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, happy to be back. So one of your pieces on this, it's entitled The Obvious Answer to Homelessness and Why Everyone's Ignoring It. And you basically say that, you know, the reasons that an individual person becomes homeless have all sorts to do with, you know, personal tragedies and bad luck and things of that nature. Uh, but the reason that we have homelessness at a societal scale, you say, is really just that there aren't enough homes. And so somebody is going to have to end up not having a home. And it's going to be the people who have those events befall them who are the ones who don't get the homes. So I guess, first of all, is this controversial? I feel like we've been having this argument for years. And people, they can look at it. You can say, well, you know, if poverty causes homelessness, why is there so little homelessness in West Virginia? Do people really still deny this idea that the reason there's such a major homelessness problem in Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York is, is, a, is a housing price issue? Yeah, I wish I could send you my Twitter DMs and <laughs> email after <laughs> I published this article. They, they do believe that, you know, homelessness is, is caused by things other than housing supply, namely things like poverty, things like drug abuse, things like mental illness, a variety of things about like personal responsibility. And I think that there's, you know, a few things that I want to tease out here. Like first is like, it makes a lot of sense, the impression that people have about what is causing homelessness comes from their own personal experiences with homeless populations. And for the majority of people who will never um, be homeless, they usually notice homelessness when it's an extremely, you know, dramatic occurrence that's happening in their daily lives. Like either they're like on the 
public transit and they notice that someone's having a mental health crisis or they walk down the street and they see someone, you know, doing drugs or they are aware of from local news or from next door, all these are kind of like really scary stories that are going to stick in your head. You're not going to notice, you know, someone who is, you know, bouncing from house to house, staying with their friends. You're not going to notice people who are having to stay in a motel. You're probably not even going to notice people who are staying in homeless shelters because those things are really kept out of sight. What you do notice are the kind of like the really extreme examples, which lead people to kind of make an uh, inference that that's what is causing homelessness. So it makes sense that people don't really believe that homelessness is, is fu- simply a function of housing supply. But I think there's also important to tease out another thing, which is like, what does it mean when we say like something causes something else, right? Because like, if you talk to an individual person on the street and you say like, hey, like, how did you end up homeless? They might tell you a story about how they got divorced. It caused them a massive financial um, crisis. They stayed with their parents for a while, then they had a falling out. They stayed with another friend and that was an unstable situation and they had to separate from their children. And they'll tell you a story about their own personal life circumstances and why they got to the point where they couldn't afford rent and they couldn't get a job that could pay those bills. And while that's all true for an individual person, that doesn't explain why we're in a situation where tons of people more and more who experience these types of financial or personal tragedies end up homeless. Because for the whole of history, right, there have been tons of personal tragedies. There's been tons of poverty. There's been drug abuse. There have been mental illness. What changed to make it such that when you experience one of those things, you are now increasingly likely to end up on the street and not to end up in maybe a lower income housing situation or your parents' houses or your, your friends or whatever could afford to have you in their place. But now your friends are living in overcrowded living situations themselves because housing prices are so high, so they can't take you in. And so that fundamental structural cause of homelessness has to be seen as a function of housing supply, not because we don't want to address things like poverty or mental illness or drug abuse, but because that doesn't actually solve the underlying problem of, you know, there are always going to be people in distress in society. If there's always a bottom 10% people who are in distress who are always going to be facing homelessness, it doesn't matter how high you lift up, you know, the bar for what distress is, those people will be homeless because there aren't housing options available to them. I also I feel like there's a version of this in all sorts of conversations that we have about social problems these days where there's some issue, whether it's obesity uh, or whether it's the risk of being a victim of crime or all sorts of things where there's, you know, there's a number of things that you can do as an individual to address those risks. And there are a number of things that can be done at a societal level or at a government level to address them. And the division of labor we ought to have is that the government and other civic institutions focus on those societal level things and individuals focus on those individual level things. But then we have these conversations that get dysfunctional in two directions. One is if, if you ever try to talk about the individual level stuff, people say, well, you know, it's structural and you can't blame the victim and that sort of thing. And at the same time, sometimes in those public policy discussions, people really want to focus on those, you know, individual responsibility matters that the government can't directly control. These things both matter in terms of producing good outcomes, and they're both perfectly valid things to discuss. They just need to be discussed in the in the correct context. And I think people, to some extent, they've lost that. And to some extent, it's a dodge. They don't want to do the thing that needs to be done in public policy. So they focus on the individual responsibility matter, or they don't, you know, they're so reluctant to ever blame an individual for their own circumstances. They can't talk about that. So it feels like that's, you know, that's sort of the, the, if you're a state level lawmaker, the number one thing you need to be focusing on here is ensuring adequate production of housing, which is not to say that, you know, people should not be Make, taking steps in their individual lives and in their social networks to try to promote healthy behaviors and to promote uh, healthy household units that, that reduce the likelihood of these crises that create specific instances of homelessness. 
Yeah, I, I think that one point is really a series that often people don't want to do the thing that would actually address the problem. And so they focus on these other narratives or politically palatable scapegoats so that you can actually ignore the difficult work of policymaking. I think that's definitely a part of it. I think when it comes to mm-hmm. taking on the, um, you know, the, the, the vested interests that don't want to build sufficient housing and particularly don't want to see affordable housing and housing for homeless folks or housing for, uh, you know, disadvantaged people being built in their neighborhoods. And so that's a really hard thing to do. And so it's easier to say, okay, like, let's, let's think about something else here. Let's talk about, you know, drug addiction or mental illness and like why the American family is breaking apart. And like, those are also like things that are important Mm. and things that, you know, require some sort of attention. But I don't know that the government can just say like, let's fix the American family and we'll be able to do something like that. What they can do is ensure there's an adequate housing supply. And I think that that's, that's, that's really important. And I also think that um, there are a lot of people who are probably like they look around them, they say like, okay, everyone's been talking about building permanent supportive housing. I think this is like a big thing in California, particularly where homelessness has been a really big conversation for a while. And also in Seattle and in Portland, mostly the West Coast, where this has been a really big problem Mm -hmm. for years, is that people say like, okay, my elected officials have been saying permanent supportive housing. They've been talking about building affordable housing for for years and years and years. And this problem just gets worse and worse. And so internally, they say, okay, like, that clearly is a strategy that has failed. Thus, housing can't be the answer here. I think this is a really dangerous trap for policymakers because it's obviously the case that like the current strategy hasn't worked, but it's not because housing is not the solution to homelessness. It's because we've not built anywhere near the amount of housing and also because people conceptualize this as a stock problem instead of a flow problem. And what I mean by that Mm -hmm. is that people are like, why don't you just get the homeless population off the street and put them in housing? Like, how could it possibly take decades and decades to do that? But the problem is not the 500,000 people or so in the entire United States that are unhoused. Like, that's actually a quite manageable population of people to get into housing. It's that Every single day, there are millions and millions of Americans who are experiencing extreme housing insecurity who could fall into homelessness at any moment. Like in Los Angeles, the number of people that are actually put in permanent supportive housing is like over 200 on on a a daily basis. But the number of people who fall into homelessness are roughly around the same number as well. And so that's a situation where, you know, public agencies can't even focus on the stock of people who are currently today homeless because they're freaking out about every single day, the hundreds and hundreds of people who are going to experience that in the future. So you have to make it such that people aren't falling into that state um, before you can actually address the, the problem of, of, of who's homeless now. I, I think an instinct that a lot of people have when you describe a phenomenon like that, you have a coastal city like Los Angeles or San Francisco that cannot keep up with the flow of, of homeless people who require services and housing, is that people will assume that people, they move to where those services are. Um, that, you know, that if you talk about, I mean, you, you mentioned these cities on the West Coast. I mean, one thing about these cities is that it rarely falls below freezing in the list of cities that you mentioned, San Francisco, Portland, Seattle. Um, and these are also cities that have relatively robust infrastructures to provide homeless services. Now, they're, they're not robust up to the, you know, the, the surging number of people who are now requiring their use. But I think people sort of assume that the issue is that if, if Los Angeles starts putting people into permanently supportive housing, that you get homeless people showing up in Los Angeles trying to get into permanently supportive housing. 
a few things here. One, I'm going to just like overview this entire conversation with like the data we have here is actually quite bad. What we know about homeless folks is usually just like there's one night of the year where people will try to like count all the homeless people. And sometimes homeless researchers have tried to like see how good these counts are. And they'll like pose as homeless people on the street and like they'll be missed by the researchers that are <laughs> counting these people. So it's like it's not a situation where this is like the best data or anything like that. So I don't want to mm -hmm. um, kind of overstate the level of confidence we should have in, in the data around homelessness. But this is a claim that I think if we just both looking at the data, but also firstly, just thinking about the logic of the situation doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Like I want people to imagine like you live in like, I don't know, Sioux City, Iowa, and you fall into homelessness and all your friends and family are here. Your job connections are here and it's expensive to move and you're going to just get up pack up all your stuff and like move to Los Angeles, a place that you've never been to before, have no connections to, have no support system in, don't know any of the people, don't even know where you would go to get supportive services. I mean, it actually kind of like defies logic that large numbers of people would be doing this. And then when you look at the actual statistics that we do have, this is not correct. I cite in my article um, about San Francisco, only 4% of people were said that they came from outside of California who were in homeless in San Francisco. Um, the vast majority was either in San Francisco when they came homeless or in a surrounding county like Marin County or something that was like right next door. And so we do okay. know that people move from like, you know, the county suburban area to the urban core that they're in because it's easier to access services that way. But that's not something where someone's like moving from like, you know, Idaho or something like that. But the other thing to think of is here is like, if this weather um, is, is really that big of a factor like why aren't there large homeless populations in um you know uh, relatively high homeless populations in florida or miami places that are also extremely warm people move there all the time for for that kind of weather other warm states like alabama mississippi all these other places maybe not as nice like vacation locales but are also very warm don't see high levels of homelessness either so when we talk about housing that is affordable to people at the at the low end of the of, of the economic spectrum in cities like this, I mean, I, li I live in Manhattan, and historically, the the cheap housing in Manhattan was SRO, single resident occupancy type buildings, where you have a small room of your own, you have a shared bathroom, boarding houses, and and you know these are it's shitty housing. And the city in the mid-20th century essentially prohibited the construction of new housing like this. There are minimum unit sizes. There are also You have to have your own bathroom and your own cooking facilities. And the idea was basically, we don't want people living in places like this. This is no way to live. So when you build new, new housing, it has to be nicer than that. But the other element to that is that people don't really like living next to a boarding house. They don't really want to live next to the low-income people who live in those sorts of buildings. So you can say, when you require a, a higher standard, you can say that you're you're, you're sticking up for people who live in the buildings, but you're also implicitly limiting who is actually going to live in those buildings. And then we have this kind of perverse policy where you can't build a new SRO, but it's also really hard to close and tear down one that exists. Uh, the units in those are subject to rent stabilization like any other apartment. Uh, and so it's this weird policy stasis where like, we have some amount of this housing that is insufficient compared to the number of people um, for whom this would be a good alternative compared to living in a homeless shelter or living on the street. And you're not allowed to get rid of what we have, but you're also not allowed to build new versions of it. And then when I look at cities trying to, they have these programs where they're trying to build new new income-restricted affordable housing and housing that they can move people into from homelessness. And because it is subject to these higher requirements, you end up with a really high cost per unit. 
like well north of half a million dollars a unit often. And that's, I think, is the key limiting factor on, you know, why is it the case that Los Angeles allocates billions of dollars for the construction of this sort of housing and they don't get it? It's a combination of cost. And then you have other things you can sometimes you layer in requirements about how you have to pay labor prevailing wages. You have, you know, environmental standards on the buildings that all sound nice. These things all layer in cost. So basically, you, you have both zoning rules and you have this high cost per unit that's imposed by choices that you make. And yes, you end up with nicer housing that pays better wages to the workers who build it and that sort of thing. But you also get a lot fewer units. Am I, am I correctly sort of diagnosing why it is that we're, we're not actually building the housing that we say we want to build? Yeah, so I think that that distinction is, um, those are the kind of the two big things to think about too um, when it comes to constructing affordable housing is both kind of like the regulations and the regulatory environment that builds costs, but that that regulatory environment is is including both like, you know, things that you might say are worth the cost. Like you want some sort of like fire regulations, right? To make sure that people are like safe in these sorts of buildings. And you want some sorts of like minimum standards, like people shouldn't be living in buildings where, you know, there's carbon monoxide poisoning and they're going to, you know, they're going to die or something like that. Like those are things where you would think those are reasonable regulations. But then you get layered on top of this prevailing ideology that you can kind of like regulate away poverty. And that if you just make it such that it's illegal to build anything that, you know, lower income folks um, would be able to afford, then they'll be able to afford and like access like middle income housing instead. But that's just not reality. If you don't solve the problems of poverty uh, and, and you eliminate the existence of cheap accessible housing, then poor people will just live on the street or they'll overcrowd into units so that they can join their incomes together to afford those places. And so I think that that is a really big problem. And there's also like this larger thing here where, you know, we've gotten to the point in some places, I think in San Francisco, it costs over a million dollars to build a single unit of affordable housing. And a lot of that I think is regulatory. I think that's downstream of all of the things that are in place because people want to make it difficult to build new housing. So you implement all of these, you know, processes to make it really hard and long in order for developers to ever, and that includes affordable housing nonprofit developers, to be able to site and build and zone for uh, an affordable unit. But also there's like this unknown, like what, what else is going on here that is causing this? I think part of that is probably labor, as you mentioned, when you think about like, there's not, it's not easy for construction workers to um, enter into the country and like help fill the supply of, of those jobs. And so there's a bunch of things going on there that I think are really important to address. So let's talk about opposition to the construction of new housing, because I, I think the conversation around this is not always productive, including from the, the pro-production side, because people have a lot of feelings about their neighborhoods. And, and some of this has to do with what they perceive as improving value. But I think often not as much of it as people assume in this discourse, because even where I live in New York, it's very often renters uh, who are pushing against new construction in their neighborhoods, even though in theory, they should come out ahead from the, the increased supply of housing housing is a thing that they buy by the month. And if the supply goes up, that should alleviate upward pressure on price. And partly that might be that people have misapprehensions about how supply and demand works in this market. And they think that because they see new towers going up where things are expensive, they assume the towers are causing the price increases. But I think 
most of it is not financial at all. It's that people, they don't want it to be harder to park in their neighborhood. Uh, they are concerned about the way the character of the neighborhood will change, which is sometimes a euphemism about being around lower income people or people of different ethnicities. But it's also sometimes about, you know, I, you know, all of these new condos are going to come in and they're going to open a bunch of fancy boutique shops instead of the places that I want to shop um, and things of that nature. They, you know, they like things as they are. There's a reason why they live where they do and they don't want them to change. And I think that, you know, you can argue against people's preferences, but ultimately they prefer the things they prefer. So how do we, how do we operate in that political environment? If at a, you know, if at a societal level, we really need more housing, but people have often perfectly valid reasons why they don't want it in their backyard. What do you do about that? Yeah. So I think there are a few things here. One is I think that this is actually one of the biggest things I've updated on in the last couple of years is that previously, if you'd asked me, I would say like, you know, like maybe 80% of what people mean is that they're concerned about their actual property values, that they're like really worried about the actual monetary effect. And then a lot of the rest has to do with like distaste for poor folks or, or, you know, that kind of thing, or like this idea that you should be able to buy in just like that they did and they worked really hard. And over the last couple of years, especially on reporting and like really reading a lot of these things, I think that a lot of people, I agree with you, are actually saying something about like, I just kind of like the vibe of my neighborhood and I don't want it to change and I like stability and I don't want that shifting. And some of that stuff has to do with like property values. But when you say property value, like you're talking about like how nice the area is, right? And that's also just kind of like your vibe around what it means to like want to live in this place. And like when you buy a house somewhere, you fall in love, hopefully, because you're making that big of a purchase, you hopefully like are really falling in love with the area. You're like making a big commitment to that place. Maybe you could have like ideas of the ways that you'd want it to improve, but like largely you don't want massive changes happening that feel outside of your control. So I think a few things here. One is that while I think this is actually a pretty widespread feeling, like people prefer stability when you ask them, like, do you think that you should have a say in like pausing um, big changes in your community? I assume that a lot of them would say yes. But the people who actually show up and like clog up the processes that lead to more housing being built are a very small, very weird, very unrepresentative group of people. And so these are people like, I mean, just think about like, I bet of the listeners here, even this group of people who are very wonky and probably much more involved in like politics and, and, and think about economics much more, the idea that most of them have shown up to a single zoning board meeting in their lives would be shocking to me. And so it's just like, it's very bizarre that people would do this. And so because of that, I think the question here is not like, how do we change a fundamental reality, which is that a lot of people really like um, stability and they don't like change and they are afraid of like really large vibe shifts <laughs> in their communities. But actually, how do we create a process which respects the fact that you don't want massive shifts happening all the time in how um, communities look and feel, but also doesn't clog the ability for, for cities to change and grow? And the thing is, the real issue here is not changing those attitudes. It's making sure that five or 10 people who show up to a community meeting or even 200 people in a single borough in Manhattan or in Queens or whatever don't stop the building of affordable housing happening, that we elect public officials that that they take into consideration, okay, there is one concern that people have, which is they don't like large condo buildings. And there's another concern that people have, which is that they can't afford to live in New York City. And then those public officials can make determinations about which one of those things is more important. And then they can actually implement policies that address those concerns. And then voters can look at the outcome and decide, do I enjoy living in a growing, thriving, changing city in which, yeah, 
things do change and I'm kind of annoyed and irritated at developers, but like I can afford to live here. My friends can afford to live here. Artists and poor folks can afford to live here. And so my community and city is actually really interesting and cool and diverse and full of interesting things. Or do they say like, no, I actually preferred this kind of like old um, way that we used to be and they'll, they'll vote those people out. And I think that the, one of the things here is that this is really self-perpetuating, right? Like when you live in a growing, thriving, diverse community that like is coming up with cool new foods because immigrants can afford to live there and that's they can like bring in like a cool new cuisine to your community and like artists can afford to live there so you're having access to new interesting art spaces when you live in that place it becomes self-perpetuating that you are more favorable to growth and change but when you live in a place and in a time and in a community where stability and scarcity is kind of like the way that things work you become attuned to that and you became really afraid that change is going to harm you and so I think the thing here is how do we change the processes by which we make decisions about how our cities change to be actually more reflective of a normal representative democracy and less 100 people can get in a room and get really mad and everything, you know, blows up. Well, but I don't I don't I don't know how the we operates there because I mean I can there, there's a couple of different models here like in California you have the CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act, that creates all sorts of opportunities for people to file lawsuits that even if they're not necessarily going to win, they can tie up projects for years and years. You know, if someone in San Francisco is is a stick in the mud and doesn't want a project, they have a bunch of legal recourse that they may work through. And that's a, that's a big problem in California. Here in New York, it's not like that. The processes are informal. We have community boards, but they're they're really fundamentally advisory and they are appointed by politicians. Um, so ultimately, the control is supposed to rest with the politicians overseeing the community boards. And then zoning matters are a matter for the entire city council. And yet, we have this practice here in New York called member deference, where basically if, you're, if, if there's a zoning change proposed in your city council district and you don't want it, everyone else on the council will vote against it. And so you get the, the influence of these local neighborhood groups who don't want something built, even though there's a citywide need for housing, the council member, you know, yes, it's, it's a handful of, of loud people at a meeting, but it's also not that large a council district. And these are people who are very politically active, who are influential. And the lobby for, you know, more housing in the region generally is not powerful in that city council election. And member deference isn't a law. It's a practice. We can't repeal it. And so I guess, you know, if we decide that housing production is more important and we want to elect people to the council who feel that way, that is I'm, that's something we could try to do. But it's that that's sort of a bottom up organizing thing that I think is very challenging, especially when it's in these sorts of individual elections where you're up against a lot of people in these individual districts who have these strong preservationist views about whichever specific district they're in. So I think that, you know, the if the solution in New York is just like, you know, the, the council should be better. I think that's that's a very difficult thing to implement. Yeah. I mean, the thing I'll say to this, and this is another story that I'm working on here, is that I just don't think these things should be so local. There's a reason why Eric Adams is more Yimby than individual council members. There's a reason why Kathy Hochul is more, yes, in my backyard, more pro-housing production than even uh, local members of the state house or of just local city council members or whatever. Because the more local you get, the smaller the percentage of people who uh, even engage in local politics is. 
is, which means the small number of people whose concerns it requires to actually change policy. And what that means is that like, you know, for things that are like truly, truly local, like there's a pothole on your road and like you're really mad about it. There should be some way for like you to be able to say like, hey, like you need to fix this. This is like public infrastructure and like my voice should matter and you're affecting like my street and there should be people who do that. But the issue of housing production is not local. It is a at least regional, if not national concern. If places that have the most productive jobs and other job centers and have high wages are basically barring people from around the country from being able to access those and then also harming the people who live within the community already by making them pay extraordinarily high rents and housing prices. And so you need to move the decision making up. And that makes it actually more democratic, not less democratic, because more people vote at the state level. More people vote for mayor than they do for their city council members. They know their mayor and they're more willing to blame their mayor and hold that person accountable than they will like local members of government. And that's true across the country. And then when you get to the state level, more even more people are willing to hold that person accountable. There's also more journalism that holds that person accountable. I mean, New York's a little bit different. Obviously, you guys have a really like thriving like local journalism space, mm-hmm. but like talking nationally, when you get to the state level, like state governments usually are held at a much higher standard of accountability than any kind of local government, which often has like there's like zero journalists even paying attention. So like there's no way for voters to hold those people accountable because there's no information. And so in general, what you want, and that's why a lot of these pro-housing production bills are not happening bottom up. Like they're not happening because like local people are getting together and saying like, hey, like we're going to, you know, outlaw single family housing in like my little district. It's happening at the state level in California, in, in Oregon. It's happening to at the state To be clear, nobody's in- outlawing single family housing. <laughs> Sorry, zoning. I said They're that outlawing <laughs> single family zoning, which we're requires that housing must be in detached single-family structure. Exactly. You can still build a single-family house on the land if that's what you want to do with the land. Totally. What they're banning is, as you just said, is making it illegal to build anything but a single-family house. So, you know, that's that's why that's happening at the state level. That's why these concerns are happening at the state level, because at the state level, we, we as voters hold our elected officials accountable for economic, larger economic concerns we have, and we don't think of our, you know, local officials as being responsible for high rents or for, you know, our cost of living in general. And so I think it's really important to to do that. And that that's how you actually change the processes in order to get uh, more housing production. What do we need to learn from red states? I mean, because so much of this conversation has had, you know, about these deep blue cities and it's had effectively as an intra-democratic party conversation because we're talking about places like New York and Los Angeles where the Democratic Party dominates politics. But the metro areas in the country that have succeeded at producing well, so there's sort of there's two different kinds of places where housing is relatively affordable. You have metros in the Midwest that have experienced industrial decline and that are they don't just have adequate housing. They actually have excessive supply of housing because the you know, there more people used to live there. And so that's that's a way toward affordability. I don't think it's the way that most people want to go toward affordability. And then you have metros in the Sun Belt that have succeeded at producing enough housing or approximately enough housing compared to the number of people who desire to live and, and move into those growing metropolitan areas. A lot of that housing is quite sprawling. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of the Yimbies, when they imagine their utopian version of New York and San Francisco, they're just imagining ever taller, denser buildings and more people living in apartments and walking to work um, and, you know, a very low energy, high density future. But that's not what we see if we, I mean, there's a lot of apartments in Houston, but there's also a lot, a lot of tract homes in Houston. Do people whose, whose primary goal, and, and, and partly it's that people have more than one goal, there are environmental goals to go along with it, but if you're goal is about making sure that people can be affordably housed. Do you need to get more comfortable with the idea that people are going to live in sprawling suburbs and drive to work and have detached single-family houses? I mean, 
the, the same thing is true of almost all superstar cities, right? What, what ends up happening is you have kind of agglomerations of workers that kind of start getting pulled and firms getting pulled into places like Boston, DC, you know, Silicon Valley in particular is a really good example. And then, you know, people are able to build out until the commuting zone ends, right? Like, so people are not willing usually to drive more than two hours to get to work. And so when you hit that commuting zone, then prices start like skyrocketing within because there's like no way to keep building out and still access the people who want to live there. And then there's also the secondary thing of growth controls where because a lot of places are concerned with sprawl, they maybe will reduce that commuting zone. So you can't actually sprawl out as much as maybe people would want to live. And so I think that there are a couple things here. One is that if places like Houston and like Austin and like Phoenix, you know, continue to sprawl out, like they will also hit their commuting zones as well. I think that you're already kind of seeing that in um, places like Phoenix, where the suburbs are seeing skyrocketing prices as well, because people are moving there as seeking more affordable housing. And so like they will eventually if they if they continue to grow, and they hit the rate at which, um, you know, our coastal cities have still see the same problems eventually, right? They'll have the same issue where like, you can't continue to build out. Um, this is also obviously mediated by the fact that remote work has made it more possible for a commuting zone to be larger. If someone's only driving in twice a week or not at all. Maybe they're willing to live three hours or four hours from an urban core. Um, and especially because development has changed a bit, such that suburban areas are a little bit more like urban, right? You have like this idea of like a 15-minute city where you can drive within 15 minutes of transport. You can get to, um, you know, the school that you, your kids go to or like the shopping area that you want to go to or whatever. And so these places have like somewhat urbanized in a way as well, such that like maybe you don't need to get to the urban core of Phoenix to still have the amenities that you want as a young, um, you know, homeowner. So all of those things are true. I think that like I, I, I'm, I'm a little skeptical because I think people get this question, asking this question a lot, Josh, where they're like, "Well, what, are red states like doing better?" I just don't think they face the problem. There just like aren't cities like San Francisco in Texas or Florida. There aren't cities like that have attracted this level of demand from all over the country and all over the world for workers in the same way. Um, we're seeing that as people are forced to leave California and New York, that more and more people are forced to go there. But it's like not nearly at the levels that like these places in blue states have experience. Um, there are obviously better policies. I think that when you have less demand, there's like more room to do better. Like Houston and is obviously a really good example of being willing to build a lot more and having reduced constraints on housing supply. But I mean, Austin is like an extremely NIMBY city in a lot of ways as it's faced as increasing demand for as young urban professionals have moved there. And a lot of those people are Texans who are moving and flocking to Austin. And um, you see this idea, like, keep Austin weird has become almost like a NIMBY slogan at this point. Um, they don't want newcomers. They're like castigating them as Californians. You'll get places like Idaho that in 2020 and 2021 saw a large influx of demand for as new homeowners were seeking affordable housing. And you have graffiti um, that says, go home Californians. And so I think this kind of idea that like NIMBYism is particular to blue states, or even that the policy environment is would be better um, uh, than blue states if they face the same problems is wrong. I do agree with you, though, that like given the fact that they haven't faced the same problems, the policy environment has evolved in red states to be more growth friendly because they've needed to do a lot to attract people in the way that blue states often have not. There's a more conservative version of this defense of the suburbs, um, probably the more common one. And I, actually, I, I think I made a mistake here. And, you know, the people like to focus, the Yimbies like to focus on their enemies to the left. But, you know, really, you know, the, the average suburbanite does not have left wing or, or set of views. But it's this sort of idea that the, the government is coming for your single family neighborhood and going to pave it over. And all of these apartments are going to be jammed down your throat, whether your concern is about density itself, or whether your concern is about the demographics of the people who are going to be in those apartments. It's this idea that there's this top down changed forced on on your neighborhood. And 
there are neighborhoods for which that is really true if you're going to have a significant deregulation of housing. I think, you know, I'm, I, I think we should raise Hancock Park and build apartments, uh, you know, in between downtown Los Angeles and, and Beverly Hills. But most of the single family neighborhoods where you'd have that tremendous change in the density level are very close to urban cores. And most of them happen to be quite heavily democratic. I mean, you know, if we're talking about Brookline, Massachusetts, if we're talking about Ward 3 of Washington, D.C., west of Rock Creek Park, these are places where I think you would have really, really significant changes in the built environment if you had really significant changes in the regulatory environment. This is not generally true of suburbs farther out, in large part because if you greatly liberalize construction in the urban core, that would take development pressure off of those suburbs in the outer rings. And if you have a correct um, housing regulatory uh, uh, regime, it should generally be the case that developers will not build as much building as is allowed on a piece of land. The zoning is supposed to be a limit, and if you raise the limits enough, the market will not bear the idea that you build out to the maximum on every piece of land. And so just because you're allowed to build more than a single-family home somewhere doesn't mean that they actually will. I'm not sure about what the right way is to message that because there is this truth about like, they're probably not coming for your specific suburb. Um, and the people whose suburb they are coming for, I think are in the Democratic Party coalition and can probably just be like steamrolled over at a state level. But uh, I, don't, I, I don't think that message has really gotten through to people. Yeah, I mean, a couple things. One is I think the reason why we focus on liberals in general is because what you just said is that the majority of the places that it's relevant to talk about are people who live in very progressive neighborhoods or the suburbs of places like Tacoma Park, Maryland, which is a suburb of D.C. that's extremely progressive. That's like 98 percent for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Like these are these are not really places where there is a lot of work that needs to be done to convince conservative or moderate voters. Those are not really the relevant portions. So I think that's why that's why a lot of the discourse is focused there. And I agree with you that like, you know, most of the places that are exurbs or suburbs of smaller cities and towns would actually not be affected. But also, I think it's really important to describe like, what it is that the changes that housing production advocates are asking for is they're not saying we should mandate anything. What they're saying is that right now on people's lots of land, you as an individual property owner or a developer that owns a piece of land is restricted from building almost every single type of house. And the types of houses that they are asked to build are often not even the ones that the population is demanding. Maybe they're required to have these setbacks. So you have like this weird, annoying strip of a front lawn that you don't want to mow every week and you don't get use out of as an individual because it's too small for you to have like lawn furniture on or whatever. It does not have like, that's not something you actually really want or need. This Space between houses is like mandated at a level that is actually quite like large and such that like you can't have like small single family homes as well. Most of what we would see is conversions of these maybe single family homes of like an individual person would say like, I'm going to split my house into a duplex and or they a developer would come to them and say, hey, I'll pay you like $200,000 more than you paid for your house if you sell it to me. And right now the government is saying it's illegal for someone to pay you a ton of money for something that you own so they can do something else with it. And I think that that's like something that's like a it's like a, like a freedom aspect a property rights aspect which i think is really important but the second thing here is just like i don't think you need like massive apartment buildings everywhere to satisfy the kind of demand pressure that we're seeing it's things like duplexes it's things like um sixplexes and small apartment buildings when you look at really downtown um you know dense areas uh in other cities they're usually not larger than i mean the largest you'll see is usually 10 floors of an apartment building you're not seeing like massive skyscrapers all over the world in these places that have allowed for more buildings 
to exist. And so, um, you know, I think that obviously that's not the case in places that are extremely, extremely in need of housing right now. I think like obviously like in Manhattan, you would see a lot more tall apartment buildings go up. Uh, you'd see that also in, you know, if DC was able to get around the Height Act that restricts our uh, buildings to being around 160 feet, like you would see a lot more taller apartment buildings if they're already going to build an apartment building. They're going to like try to get to the 15th, 16th floor rather than be capped at like a 10th floor apartment building. But in general, it's these gentle density things that are going to make a real difference because most people, you know, they'll live in an apartment for some part of their lives, but they do want to have like a duplex or a row house or a single family home. But right now, the market does not even allow for small single family homes or starter homes. Like 1,500 square feet used to be kind of like the entry level home that someone would buy for the first time they bought a house. The number of houses that that applies to anymore is extremely small because these zoning requirements both have either mandated that you be larger than that uh, uh, that that square footage, or because developers are not able to put their energy towards building things like duplexes and quadplexes and apartment buildings or whatever, all they can do is redevelop single family homes over and over again and raise the price of those and raise their profit margins by making those more and more accessible to people looking for a luxury um, you know unit. And so because of that. You know, you see single family homes in these buildings that have been zoned for a really long time as only single family homes on like, you know, 10,000 square feet minimum lots or whatever as getting more and more luxurious. Like I drive down Ward 3, like very little has changed, except that like these single family homes have become much more, <laughs> much nicer over time. And what used to be affordable to a middle class person in D.C. or in Maryland or Virginia is now one point five two three million dollars to access. And so that's what happens when you mandate the zoning. You don't get to preserve accessible single family home infrastructure. You just get luxury single family homes. Let's go back to where we started about housing as investment. You wrote this piece basically saying that housing is consumption. We need to think about it this way. Why is it important for people not to think about their homes as investments? Because you, you get, you'll get a lot of pushback when you say that, partly because a home really does have investment characteristics. It is a, it is a financial decision you make that affects you for many years of your life. It may appreciate or depreciate. And you need to be prepared for those events to happen. What would it mean for people to approach that differently? And how would you, how would you think about buying a house if you're thinking about it as consumption? Yeah, mostly I think the problem is the government has been pushing on us for a long time, for decades and decades, this idea that your house should be an investment and that it's, you know, you should be leveraged to the hilt in a single uh, you know, asset that is geographically bounded, that is not diversified in any way at all. And it's like breaks like the cardinal rule of like anyone knows anything about investing would do is that you shouldn't put all of your stuff into one asset. Like people who are real investors always laugh at the people who are suckers who like will just buy one stock of like Uber or Apple and be like, yeah, like I'm investing. Like people on Robinhood who are putting their money into like random things and being like, yeah, like look, my money's going up. Like these people are suckers. They're like losing money to the stock market. Uh, they're, they're losing constantly uh, over time. Because you have to diversify across tons of investment in order to be able to hedge against, you know, local shocks, regional shocks, different things that are happening. And with a house, it's even more concerning, right? Like if they're, you know, if for some reason, like the um, local economic environment shifts dramatically, 
you know, like your house is no longer as uh, as valuable because the thing that makes your house valuable is not really the kitchen or the style or whatever it is. It is the land and the value of the land is mostly determined by how many people want to live in that area. And that has almost nothing to do with you. You can't affect that as an individual person at all. So, so I think it's a bad way to invest in general when you're asking people to hold on to that investment for 30 years. They want to hold on to that investment for 30 years because you don't know the shocks that are going to occur in that area. And also, I think the problem is it's not just that those shocks could happen and, you know, uh, the people who are able to make homeownership work for them in that environment are the people who are able to hold on to that asset through those negative shocks. So, like, if you're someone who's wealthy enough to own a house and, like, when the environment gets bad or when there becomes – there's, like, a hurricane or whatever it is and people lose their jobs, you have enough savings, you have a good enough job to, like, hold on to that until it gets better and you can sell your house then – you're going to probably going to be fine. And for a lot of people, homeownership works great that way. But for a lot of people, I think increasingly so as we're seeing these like disturbing weather events and, you know, you're going to see a lot of shifts in what areas are going to be good to live in, both because of climate change, but also because of remote work and changes in where people are going to work um, and need to be to work. You're not going to be able to hold on to those things. You lose your job. People have to sell their houses. And if you have to sell your house when the market is bad, you might lose money on your house. I mean, we saw this happen in the Great Recession, right? We saw a lot of people facing this exact problem. And so to me, it's not this like idea for a lot of people. Obviously, homeownership has worked and it's been a really stable asset. But I think in general, most people want to buy a house because they want to live there, not because they want eventually to sell that house and then move somewhere else in order to like cash in on the investment value of that property. And so if people don't want that, why are we in creating an, uh, you know, financial environment where we're saying that you should be counting on this property to carry you through medical emergencies, financial emergencies, retirement. And one thing that I found really interesting is that like most people don't even use it that way. So all of these politicians have spent decades and decades of, um, you know, my life and like many other people's lives telling us that like you buy a house, like that's how you're going to get your kid through college. That's how you're going to get your kid through you know, any medical problems. That's how you can start a business. And like people are not doing this. When people pull out equity from their houses, mostly what they're doing is they're renovating their houses, which actually means they're more and more dependent on their house because they've pulled out, you know, value from their house in order to invest in their house. And it's like, but, you but know, they also selling have a Uber nicer stock kitchen. to buy more Uber stock, you know? I mean, well, but but this is this is the thing is that the difference between taking all your money and putting it in Uber stock and taking all your money and putting it in a house is that you can live in the house. Yeah. And there are certain there are certain ways that home ownership exposes you to more financial risk, but there are also other ways that it that it hedges you against financial risk. In particular, if you live in an area where rents are rising and where there's increasing demand for housing where that where where you are and you are likely to continue to need to be housed in that location for some time, the home ownership is a hedge against that that risk risk of, of increased housing prices, that basically the home price may fluctuate up and down, but the cost of the housing that you're going to use in that area also fluctuates up and down and those things wash. Um, so that can protect you against certain financial risks of, you know, of being essentially gentrified out of your neighborhood. Now, there are other risks that that exposes you to more. If you lose your job, if you have an idiosyncratic shock where it's not something goes bad in the, in the whole economy where you are, but something goes bad in your own personal finances, then yes, that can leave you more exposed than if you were a renter and it was less costly for you to move out of the house into a different house. So there, there are pluses and minuses there. But I think it's, you know, I think it's first important to note that while there are there are bad financial reasons for people to own homes and they should not be looking at it as their retirement saving vehicle. There are also perfectly good financial reasons why people feel that they they gain security through the ownership of the house. It means it ensures that they can stay in that neighborhood if they wish to stay there. Um, but then also, I mean, to your point, I think 
people want to own homes for non-financial reasons. They they feel like this is a symbol that they have made it. They want to be able to customize the house as they wish, which makes a lot more sense when you own the home. And even when you say that cash-out refinances are mostly used for improvements, that actually seems like what they ought to be used for because you want the loan to be appropriately proportionate to the value of the of the property. So if you take the cash out and you use it to upgrade your kitchen, then you've made your house more valuable. It means the amount that you're borrowing is more reasonable compared to the value of your house than if you had taken the money and spent it on some sort of consumption. And people like new kitchens. They, you know, this is, I I just worry about arguing too much with people in their pursuit of happiness. You know, people, people want to live in a house for a while and then be able to take some cash out, maybe because it went up in value, but you know, if they've been there long enough, maybe just because they paid down the mortgage a substantial amount by that point and use that to finance the upgrades. Because just like you finance the purchase of a house, financing the improvement of a house is basically saying, I'm going to use this asset for a long time. So I might as well find a way to pay for that asset over a long period. I just, I just think this is, this is such an ingrained part of the culture. And it's a part of the culture that has, you know, perfectly valid components to it that I really want to try to avoid arguing with it to the extent that we can. I think that, you know, we can have a vision for how housing can work in the United States while making room for people to treat home ownership as a capstone um, and while making room for them to renovate their kitchens and say that all of that is perfectly consistent. Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things. One is that this article that I wrote is is definitely not tailored towards individuals. It's mostly it's an, it's an argument towards policymakers because I have no problem if people want to own the house. Like I think that's like completely fine and reasonable if people want to own it for whatever reason. But what I'll notice is that most of the time what people are saying is that they're not like just owning a home because they have this specific desire. It's they're trying to escape how bad renting is, right? It's like these unbelievable increases in rent that happen all the time, wanting to hedge against that. The lack of like control that you have over your own personal space, the idea that a landlord could just throw you out when they want to um, because they want the house back because they want to do something to it, that you can't paint your walls, that you can't do whatever you want in your garden. These are features that are really bad of our rental market that like do not have to be this way. Um, in particular for for low-income renters who, for what it, whichever way our housing market goes, will probably be renters for their entire lives. That's just unacceptable that people are in a situation where they feel like so much precarity, they don't feel access to their space as being their own space. And so this is something where it's like, yeah, we need to make the rental market a lot better and like make this an actual choice. Like right now, like it's not really a choice to become a homeowner. What it is, is like you're, uh, I mean, for for few people who are like, you know, able to live in places that are like really, uh, really nice and like apartments are really nice at the top end of the rental market. Like for you, maybe it's a meaningful choice. Like I like to live in my apartment um, and rent in DC and like likely would be able to in a few years afford to buy a house and may not do so. But like for a lot of people, it's just like the second they can get the down payment, they need to go buy a house to escape how bad it is to be a renter. And so that's not a meaningful choice to me. And so I think the article is mostly not saying, you know, you're an individual who wants to buy a house, like don't do this. It's a bad idea. I think people are very familiar with all the good reasons to buy a house, but I think it's targeted at policymakers who are looking at the marginal, you know, renter who could be a homeowner in the next couple of years and saying, stop pressuring all of these people to immediately enter homeownership without thinking about the particular circumstances that the marginal new homeowner would face, not the average homeowner, but the marginal new homeowner who is likely poorer, who is likely more financially at risk, who is likely in a place and buying a first-time property at a place that like is probably more risky at an environmental level. I mean, I cite this article um, research that NPR did in my piece around how how HUD, which is trying to increase first-time homeownership, is trying to increase minority homeownership, is pushing a bunch of people to buy houses um, in places that are flooding, like basically every single year. And that's a situation where our pursuit of homeownership has become so totalizing and how housing policy is done that there's no 
taking a step back to say, is it actually the best idea for this person to be entering homeownership given the homeownership availability, uh, the, the housing availability um, for, for their specific circumstances? If you have to move from like a really good job market where maybe you could get a raise and maybe you could get, um, you want you want the freedom to be able to like pursue better opportunities to buy a house in a place that's like on the fringes of a city where you can barely access the amenities you were used to, you can barely access your friends and family network. Are you better off? I think it's actually a really heterogeneous experience for people. And m- the dominant message that they're hearing every single day is just always homeownership is good. You should do it as soon as you can, no matter what. There's no reason not to do it. And also it's peppered with these messages around yeah, don't you want to be able to save for retirement? Like, don't you want to be able to have something at bay if, if, if there's a medical emergency? And like, that's ridiculous that like the idea that you should have to, to own a house to know that you're safe for these issues. And it's also doubly ridiculous because it's obviously not true that people aren't using their houses for this at all. Because people, again, like you said, buy houses for the reason that they want to own their space. They want to be able to have this capstone belief. And like a lot of people feel this way about ownership. But, you know, I, I just think that right now, policymakers should focus less and less on shoving people into homeownership at first thought and more and more on fixing the rental market, um, making it a housing more abundant. And to the point where if housing abundance is really real, if it's actually if there's accessible, affordable housing um, across the United States for people, then it's a meaningful choice. People can just choose what kinds of housing they want to have and, and the way that they want to be a tenant or not. Let's leave it there for this week. Uh, Jerusalem Dempsis is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Jerusalem, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And we will have links to Jerusalem's stories on this topic in the post associated with this podcast. You can find that at joshbarrow.com. If you'd like to be the first to know about our upcoming podcast topics and to suggest questions for my guests, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious newsletter. That's at joshbarrow.com. Please also consider supporting the Very Serious podcast and newsletter as a paying subscriber. Your subscription directly funds the newsletter and the podcast. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo as in mayonnaise. Of course, you can also join the comments section uh, on this specific post if you want to discuss uh, matters related to housing in the United States. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swanick mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and we'll be back soon. 